It's the Healthy Woman Show on WJR with Ann Thomas and Dr. Carol Kowalczyk, presented by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. I'm Ann Thomas, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk. And Dr. Carol, it's going to be a great show. I agree, Ann. We're going to be talking about updates with COVID, school safety, and kind of get a little recap about our football season last year. All of that coming up next. WJR's Healthy Woman Show, brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk. And Dr. Carol, our first two experts are the best in their field. Dr. Matthew Sims, Director of Infectious Disease Research at Beaumont, and also Dr. Leonard Johnson, the Division Chief and Program Director of the Infectious Disease Fellowship at Ascension St. John Hospital and Medical Center. Welcome, doctors. We really appreciate your time today. Happy to be here. And Dr. Carroll, I know you have a list of questions, very important questions that you want to get the reaction from both doctors on. Well, thank you, Ann. And thank you, gentlemen, both for, for being on tonight. And I just have to say thank you for all of your hard work. I know I say it every time, but I, I think of you often when we hear about these things, the news, you're in the front lines, you're the ones leading us in recommendations and keeping us safe and healthy. So, you know, again, I really, really appreciate everything that you are both doing to get us through this. Um, So I want to know what's going on. I mean, where are we at? This Omicron, you hear on the news that it's more virulent, less severe, you know, how does it compare with Delta? What are you seeing in your hospital and your research with regard to the progression of Omicron and the COVID virus in general? Uh, well, I can start. Um, so um, Omicron does seem to be less virulent, meaning it, it causes less severe disease. Um, it is certainly a lot more contagious. So, you know, I've said before, for a variant to take over from an from an established variant uh, like Alpha did from wild type and Delta did from Alpha, the new variant has to be more contagious or affect um, people who were not susceptible before. And with Omicron, with all the mutations it has, it's both more contagious and has the ability to affect people who have been vaccinated. Now, it infects them, but it doesn't seem to cause a lot of disease in those patients, the people who have been vaccinated. Um, And in terms of whether or not, you know, this is sort of getting us out, you know, to herd immunity, et cetera, you know, it really depends on what variants are next. The problem is, um, as you have more and more circulation of the virus, it has more and more chances to mutate. And we've heard about other variants that are out there. There there was another one that doesn't seem to be spreading, but I just yesterday heard about one that, I I can't remember where they found it, but they're they're calling it Deltacron because it seems to have the mutations of both Delta and Omicron in one virus. So if that restores Delta's virulence, so you get sicker and can infect lots of people, that's, you know, potentially problematic. Until 
this is endemic where it becomes sort of just a very common mild virus, you know, we're, we're not out of the woods yet. Mm. Dr. Johnson, what about clinically and what you're seeing? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, mass points are spot on. Uh, I mean, wildly contagious, like in our my own personal life, people I've run into and patients we've talked to, these are not people who are not, they're not going to big concerts. They're going to small social gatherings and everybody in that group gets infected. Every single person just because of a single infected person. And the symptoms tend to be for the vaccinated people, very mild, uh, not the typical loss of sense of taste or smell like it used to be. Now it's just a little headache, a little stuffy nose, maybe a little sore throat. And some a little worse than that, but that can be all it is. So if you're getting those symptoms, you should go get tested and isolate or wear a mask as appropriate and to prevent any further infections until you get the test result back. And I'll tell you, I'll bet you dollars to donuts right now, if you're having those symptoms right now, it likely is, in fact, COVID-19 infection. Wow. Now, the unvaccinated are the ones still in the ICU and dying. Um, and the unva- the vaccinated, it seems as if they are, even though they're getting these symptoms, it's widely spread, are much more protected from getting seriously ill. So the argument still exists to continue to get vaccinated and get boosted, right? A- absolutely. And, and booster is very important here because, you know, the, uh, the studies show both with Pfizer and Moderna that um, just getting the vaccine alone, you know, the two shots doesn't give as much protection against Omicron. The booster helps restore that. Um, still not as much as before in terms of protecting you from getting infected, but it really, really seems to protect people from getting sick. So it's incredibly important. And then, you know, both Pfizer and Moderna have discussed the potential for them to come out with a new version of the vaccine that changes the mRNA so that it matches Omicron, so that the, the antibodies you make from the vaccine will match Omicron perfectly rather than kind of matching it. Um, and then, you know, you may not need to boost the numbers as high because all the antibodies will work. Um, but there, we're still at least a little bit away from that. And I, I always tell people that it is not an indication that the first vaccine didn't work, that it was no good. It's, it's very good. And it's protecting people right now. We can do better. And this is the natural history of vaccines. As we get new vaccines in play, strains change. It happens with bacteria. It happens with viruses. The pneumonia shot, the Prevnar, started with seven, seven strains. Then it went to 13. Now it's up to 20. The HPV vaccine started with four strains. Now I think it's nine strains. Um, This is the natural way that vaccines change over time to include more strains. Uh, The flu shot, we used to give a uh, three-strain shot. Now we give a four-strain shot. The meningitis vaccine was three. Then it was four. Now there's five. Um, that's just the way vaccines are. And with a virus like uh, like COVID that can mutate as much as it can, it's not surprising that at some point we'll probably need that boosting, you know, while it'll help, you know, it would be better served to come up with a new version and include both mRNAs in the vaccine. So you make both sets of antibodies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And what about uh, with what you're seeing, Dr. Johnson, are you finding the same thing that the vaccinated boosted are not coming to the hospital? They're uh, not the ones that are getting admitted and getting sick? Mm -hmm. By and large, and the ones who generally do get admitted, they're actually typically admitted for some other condition and found to have COVID. So we're getting more and more of these admissions of patients admitted after a fall or an injury at home or a urinary infection or a cardiac event unrelated to COVID, and they just happen to have COVID, and they actually have no symptoms at all. That's the typical scenario I'm seeing for a lot of the people who are double vaccinated and boosted as well. And just to piggyback on a couple of things Matt was mentioning too, this is not a time to kind of say, okay, we're going to throw our hands up and say, we're going to give up on this since everybody's going to get this virus. Listen to these ID doctors. You're saying no matter what we do, in addition to getting yourself vaccinated and boosted, remember, your kids down to 12 now can get vaccinated and boosted as well. Because remember, we know kids, especially from social gatherings at school and sports, can spread a lot of virus in your family. And remember, we all want our kids in school and doing activities. I have kids at that age too. I want them doing activities too. So that's why I'm going to get them boosted. They just got to prove they're 15. And I make them wear masks at all these events. And we should be doing the same as adults too. Because part of the reason viruses mutate also is a mathematical effect. The more infections are out there, the more likely mutations are going to occur. So how do we help break this curve in addition to the vaccinations as we get back to wearing more masks when we're with large gatherings or public places? So I know people are tired of these messages, but these messages actually work. We know that since September, when Michigan Department of Health and Human Services looked at school systems where you had mask policy versus those who didn't, it was 60% less COVID infections among those who had mask mandatory policies. So they still work. And I know people don't like to hear that, but it is still part of the solution as well. Now, what about the testing? So here's what I'm hearing. There's long lines for, for COVID tests, and there's also going to be shortages of COVID tests. So in <laughs> and, and areas we're hearing. So when you, you know, there's the flu, there's allergies, there's the common cold that present the same way as Omicron. So at what point do you have this vicious cycle where uh, you sneeze twice? Oh, my God, it's Omicron. I'm going to go get tested. Um, then we're not going to have enough tests for the people who are really sick and really having the symptoms. And then what about the workforce is, you know, I, I heard the other day that I think one of the hospitals, there's only three phlebotomists that are running around the entire hospital to draw blood for everybody. So there's these protocols that, you know, if you are vaccinated and boosted, I think the CDC says, um, test if you're symptomatic, um, or five days quarantine. Like, what are the rules at this point? And at which point are we going to be, on the one hand, so freaked out that everyone's testing every five minutes, and then we have no tests to really find out versus, you know, doing the right thing? So what's the recommendation with with when to test and and quarantining and that whole thing? Lenny, you want to start this one? Well, you know, I have my own recommendation, and this isn't maybe exactly fine what Michigan Department of Health and Human Services CDC says, because all of their guidelines are based on the fact that there's plentiful tests and they're readily available. And that's not the reality. Correct. So right. I think certainly if you have a high risk exposure, like you're in close contact with somebody maskless in a social gathering, certainly, even if you're asymptomatic, probably three to five days later, you should probably get tested. If you have symptoms suggestive, you should certainly get tested. 
The one area that I think we might be able to look at a situation, now work-related ones, those are mandated by, by your workplace or something related to certain sports. If those are mandated, that's what you have to do. The one opportunity I think we could look a little bit at reducing some of our usage, because let's face it, it's not as it's it's sort of a it's a zero-sum game in the sense that there's only a certain number of tests out there, whether it's the ones at the urgent cares. We don't want you to go to the air for testing. And there's only certain numbers at the commercial um, uh, pharmacies as well. Most of those are gone. And they're running out. Exactly. Right. Is, you know, this whole notion of, you know, I'm going to have a big Super Bowl party and I want everybody to get a test before. Well, okay. So, you know, I don't know that that's a great use of them. If you have to do it for foreign travel, that would be certainly something you have to do. But if it's everybody just we want to have a party with 25 people, maybe we don't do 25 tests before. And we just have people, maybe we have a smaller party size, or we have to make sure everybody's triple boosted, and we maybe people wear masks during certain portions of the party as well, except when they're eating, stuff like that. I just think there's some opportunity to maybe reduce some of our testing. Yeah, I, I agree, you know, and, and there's people who just because of an abundance of caution or this is the way they feel, they, they get tested multiple times. So, you know... Mm-hmm twice a week or something like that. And sometimes it's a work thing. You know, people have some places that have mandated vaccine have, have put an option in. Well, if you don't want to, if you don't want to get the vaccine, then you have to get tested at least once a week or once or twice a week. I mean, it's just, you can't keep that up. It, it, it right. will just, will, you know, it, it just can't be kept up. And there's a couple of other things about tests that I want to mention. Um, you know, a lot of people are using these at home tests now. Uh, which are based on detecting the the virus itself, the antigen, rather than the the RNA. Um, the thing about those is a couple of issues. Number one, those tests don't get reported back, right? So people who are just getting symptoms and not getting tested, and people who are using these at home tests, are not being counted into the case numbers, right? So remember how I said it's at least three or four times more contagious than. Delta was, well, that's probably a horrible underestimation because we don't know what our true number of cases is because people are either not testing or are testing with home kits. So that's number one. Number two, there's data now that these antigens, you know, what does everybody say about Omicron? Oh, I got this scratchy throat. You know, that it, that wasn't something we saw much with Delta or with Alpha you know, we saw more like loss of sense of smell. And with Omicron, not so much loss of sense of smell. Now you're getting scratchy throat. Well, it looks like it's carried in the throat more than it's carried in the um, the nose. And because of that, you might have to wait a few more days of symptoms before the antigen test detects it. And that's throwing the numbers off too. So you might think you're safe. Oh, I got the scratchy throat. I tested myself, I'm negative and you really have it, and then you can go and spread it. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. We'll be back right after these messages. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk, and we are talking to Dr. Matthew Sims, the Director of Infectious Disease Research at Beaumont Hospital, and Dr. Leonard Johnson, the Division Chief and Program Director of the Infectious Disease Fellowship at Ascension St. John Hospital and Medical Center. And doctors, I recently spoke with a pediatrician who said she is starting to see 
more children getting sicker and some of them even being hospitalized. What are you seeing? What do you think about this? How can we protect our children? Well, you know, I, I'm not first. I'm, I'm not a pediatrician. I'm not a pediatric ID doctor, but I do keep on top of the numbers there as well. Um, indeed, we are seeing more children getting infected. Um, some of that's happening at the schools. It's so 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 contagious, um, and even where masking, you know. Uh, is used, you know, at lunch, they take down their masks and they eat with each other and it's, it's just still spreading. Um, and then um, there has been an increase in the overall number of admitted children. Um, and I've heard anecdotally that they, they are a bit sicker. Um, now, the thing is, the, the way to protect kids is the same way as protecting adults, right? Children from 12 and up can be vaccinated and boosted, and they get the adult dose of the vaccine. Um, children from 5 to 11 can be vaccinated. Um, they get a lower dose for their age group. Um, they're still studying children under 5. Um, so vaccine, 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 and masking. Those are the, And social distancing, masking, avoiding situations that you don't need to be in, vaccination. That's how we're going to get out of this. What about keeping the children in school? Are you a fan of having the kids in school? You know, I have two kids. They're both still in person. Um, that being said, you know, kids get exposed all the time. I think it's important for them to be in school. I think that my kids luckily did great when we were virtual. But I know not all kids do. And, um, and even with the virtual, they didn't get to see their friends. They didn't get that social interaction that's so important for children. Um, so yes, I'm a big fan of keeping them in school. I just need it to be done safely. And Dr. Caroline, no, go ahead, Dr. Johnson. And I think to piggyback on that, remember that just as for healthcare workers, a lot of the COVID infections we're seeing among healthcare workers, just as with school-age kids, are not when they're in their school or work environment, but it's actually from social exposure. So, you know, again, so I, sometimes we think, oh, a healthcare worker must've got COVID at work or a child must've got it at school. It's actually often not the case. So just be careful at school. Get your kids vaccinated if they meet the criteria as Dr. Uh, Sims went through. Uh, and I think we can keep them in activities in school. And Dr. Carroll, I know you have a couple more questions before we let the doctors get back to their jobs. Oh, thanks, Ed. So what about other treatments? So we know that we need to be vaccinated, we need to be boosted, we need to social distance in, in large crowds in, uh, inside, uh, et cetera. We know we need to wear masks. Now we have the COVID uh, virus, and I know that it's going to take, you know, the Omicron's less. What are some other treatments people are getting when they really get sick with COVID? So the treatments that have been proven to work Right. There's lots of treatments people are trying, but the treatments that have been proven to work, um, the monoclonals uh, helped, uh, but, you know, monoclonals are antibodies, just like antibodies that you make when you're vaccinated or when you're exposed. And unfortunately, with the changes in Omicron, several of the monoclonals that we were using before don't work anymore. So there's only one monoclonal that still works. It's only available IV, and it's in very short supply. Um, so monoclonals limited right now. And then we have the two new drugs, Paxlovid and Malnuprinivir. 
which help reduce hospitalization in people as long as they take them within the first few days of symptoms. The thing is, those are in very limited supply and they're only available outpatient. Um, so they have to be prescribed. There's a whole form that has to be filled out that assesses the risk that the person who's getting it uh, has for progressing to serious disease. And then supplies are given out based on an algorithm with that, which evaluates that versus all the other people who are asking for it. And my understanding is there have been 12 pharmacies chosen in Michigan to be the supplier or the, the distribution points. Um, and that's it. Um, there's also a little bit of uh, new data. There's also a little bit of new data uh, that remdesivir, the, the drug we've been using for quite a while, um, is, uh, can be used outpatient early. Uh, and some places are starting to set up uh, doing that similar to the way we used to do, we were doing monoclonals. Uh, but that's very early, and uh, it's based on uh, one one big study. So, mm-hmm. so Dr. Johnson, what is the criteria needed to get these additional medications to treat your COVID? Well, because as Dr. Sims mentioned, they're on such short supply. We wish we'd give them to everybody, but the first thing is timing. So for the oral medications, Paxlovid and Malnuprevir, you have to be within five days of your symptom onset. So it means you got to get tested and reach a doctor who can prescribe them very quickly. For the monoclonal antibodies, it's within seven days. So you've got to get those fairly quickly. You know, you've got to get a diagnosis and reach out to provider. And then you have to meet some of the criteria in terms of high-risk individuals. And for those people who, if they want to go through those, you can probably look online to look at criteria for use for these. But generally speaking, these are immunosuppressed people. Um, in the place of monoclonal antibody, we prioritize pregnant women uh, who obviously should get vaccinated as well. But we prioritize uh, pregnant women, especially for monoclonal antibody, older patients and patients with what we call larger BMI or more advanced obesity. But these are people who so we can see because of the scarcity of the resources, we've had to limit it to a smaller number of people. But if you certainly are one of those groups, pregnant woman, immunosuppressed, elderly, and you're within the five or seven day window, reach out to your provider as quickly as possible to get referral for either the monoclonal antibody or one of the oral agents. It is unlikely you will get both because of scarcity of these resources. Wow. So in summary then, uh, are we getting any close to being done with this? Is there any projection that you know, by this time, this spring, summer, next year. I mean, I'm getting tired. I'm trying to be good. I'm getting tired of wearing these masks. I'm getting tired of doing all this stuff. I'm doing my part as a citizen. But, man, is there any light at the end of this tunnel? Good question. You know, that that's a great question. And, and you know what they say, be careful of the light at the end of the tunnel. It may be an oncoming train. Uh, <laughs> we just don't know. You know, um, think about it this way. Something like smallpox, which was, um, you know, eliminated by vaccination because everybody got vaccinated. But it took years and to do that. Right. And smallpox didn't change the way this one changes. It wasn't a respiratory virus in the same way this is. So I think we need a combination of things. We need the virus to become more endemic, which means weaker and probably spread even faster, right? To, to the point where it's like the common cold. Um, and 
Omicron is a step in that direction, but we don't know if we're going to take steps backwards. Um, it's a little too early to start predicting when we're going to come out of this. I think uh, um, I was in a, a, a talk, you know, sort of right around when the vaccines were approved and we were predicting that sometime in, you know, around the end of uh, 2022, first, uh, excuse me, first quarter to the end of 2022, we'd be under control. But things have changed so much since then. You know, predictions are just, you know, they're just a guess. But I think to Matt's point, though, every time we've had worldwide pandemics of a major, uh, you know, level, other than the flu outbreak in 17, 1917, 1918, but since then, uh, smallpox, polio, et cetera, we have actually been able to vaccinate our way out of it. But remember, just as in the polio vaccine, remember, it wasn't the first round of polio vaccines that was the knockout punch. The first vaccine did okay, but we had to get newer versions of the polio vaccine to get to that point, to get it down. So, so everybody, rather than getting discouraged about the first set of vaccines not eliminating the virus, remember, we've only had 60% uptake in Michigan. That means we still got 4 million people not vaccinated in the state. That's a large number. So we've got to do a lot more work to help towards this goal too. So to say the vaccine hasn't worked, I don't know that we've given it a fair chance because we all estimated it would take about 80, 85% of people to get vaccinated to get to where we want to be. And, and, that was, and that was based on the original strain, which was nowhere near as contagious as the current strains. Dr. Sims and Dr. Johnson, thank you for your time today. Thank you for the very important advice. Oh, you're welcome. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. We'll be talking about school security coming up next. Are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. And Dr. Carroll, we continue the conversation now talking about school security as we start this new year. In Oxford, the students are back in school and here to talk about this and how to keep kids safe and comfortable in school is Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard. Sheriff, thank you for the time. Sure, anytime. And Sheriff, let's just kind of start out and deal with this issue that we know a lot of parents, teachers, and kids are talking about all the time. How can I go to school and feel safe? What needs to be done in 2022? Well, the first thing I would tell them, as I do in any situation, whether it's a robbery or any kind of um, crime, and certainly one as horrific as this, is you need to put it in perspective. The chances of this visiting your school statistically is very, very, very small, very unlikely. It doesn't minimize the tragedy. It doesn't minimize the anxiety or the fear, but you have to always think in, in the big picture. So the chances are small. Having said that, that doesn't mean we don't put 100% of our effort into making sure we do everything possible to prevent um, the situation or, God forbid, if it happens, how to respond best. And that's what we did in Oxford. We've been training for this for many, many years when I put in a very rigorous training, uh, active shooter training countywide Um that really laid out very specifically how we respond to something like this, hoping and praying it would never happen. But for us, that's not a strategy preparation is. So a, kind of a long answer to your question. But the first thing is understand that it's probably unlikely. One, B, we're working to prevent it very diligently, constantly. Um, and then 
probably the most important thing that kids and parents and teachers need to be aware of is they're the front line in terms of seeing concerning text, Snapchats, comments, notes, things written on walls that may be threatening. They need to share that because they're going to see it certainly way before we ever do. And then that gives us a chance to intervene and investigate. So if you see something, say something is a common phrase. It really matters here because if a student hears another student talking about, you know, I'm going to be the next whatever, I want to hurt somebody, we never take that for granted, but we have to get that information. So please, please, please either share it with, you know, your local police agency or the tip line. Okay. To say whatever the methodology is, you've got to share it so that it can be investigated. I mean, just, um, last week we arrested someone who made a threat and said he was going to, you know, do another Columbine and we investigated, determined he had said that we arrested him. He's going to be criminally charged because if you make a threat, even if you don't intend to carry it out, it's a crime. It terrorizes people. It makes them afraid. It raises the anxiety. You're going to be held accountable, and we find it unacceptable. But that's the really most important thing that every student and parent and teacher needs to do first is make sure you share information so it can be properly and fully vetted. What about more work with mental health? maybe trying to identify some of these students who are troubled ahead of time. Absolutely. I mean, we have been a big supporter of mental health programs generically across the community spectrum. In fact, I'm head of government affairs for major county sheriffs of America, and we've been pushing for years that there needs to be a larger mental health continuity of service programs across all spectrums, inpatient, outpatient, availability of beds, accessibility for outpatient treatment options, all of those things that can help someone in the best setting. For me, it's a tragedy to realize the largest mental health facilities in America are county jails. That's unacceptable. And it does a disservice to those that are struggling with mental health challenges. And then when they go acute, you know, oftentimes you see a very tragic outcome. But I'd also say this, you know, if you've got a mental health problem, you're more likely to be a victim of a crime than perpetrate one. But that doesn't, you know, um, mean that we shouldn't have a host of services available for anyone that's struggling with mental health. And I'll put an exclamation point. If you've got any kind of thing you're struggling with, seek help. That's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength. I agree. Carol, I know and you probably have questions, too. Well, I have one with regard to working with the school system. So, you know, when I've heard of these tragic events, the, you know, the teachers are all over it and they've got their students barricaded or, 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 or hidden. And, and do you work with the, the schools and, and the teachers and the principals to have them prepared? I mean, how, how, does, how do they know exactly what to do to protect their students? Yes, we do work with them. In fact, um, the Oxford High School teachers and students did a lot of things right that day. You know, obviously, we've heard about the things that could have gone differently, but they did a lot of things spot on. We've trained with them. They, we've had drills and things, and they actually had purchased um, equipment to, to secure doors, classroom doors, which were incredibly important in this instance uh, because the shooter actually shot through doors. He couldn't gain access to the rooms, so he shot through doors and some of the windows, but the kids were safe inside, inside the room. And you're not 
just inside the room. You have to be in what we call the, the safe vortex of that room so that you can't be seen or within um, range of that door. There's like a, a chart that kind of, imagine if you're looking in the door, what you can see is where a bullet would go. So you've got to be outside of that view, outside of that trajectory, if you will. And so to put them in that safe corner um, is critically important. And they did that. So a number of these rooms had had bullets that uh, went through the doors, but you know, didn't strike people inside. And, and so they did a lot of things very well, securing the doors, getting people in the safe parts of the room, um, going into lockdown quickly, which pretty much contained the shooter to the hallway. Still incredibly tragic outcome in the hallway, but, you know, he still had a lot of bullets left when my officers arrested him, when the deputies took him into custody. And so for me, that means that every one of those potential rounds is a child or a teacher that didn't die that day. Mm. Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard, thank you for your time today. We appreciate all that you are doing to keep our families safe as they go back to school this year. My pleasure. Thank you. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. We're going to talk sports coming up next. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk. And Dr. Carol, we decided on the January show that we would lighten things up a little bit and we would talk football. So I thought the very best person to bring on is our own Steve Courtney. And Steve, you and I like to talk football behind the scenes. So welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Well, ladies, it's a pleasure to be with you here. And uh, as a matter of fact, I can uh, check this off my bucket list. (laughs) (laughs) You're adorable. I love it. I love it. So why don't we start with the Lions? The Lions ended up winning the last game. So what does that mean? Well, you know, here's the thing uh, with the Lions. They they end up the season 313-1 under first-year head coach Dan Campbell. And uh, yeah, it was uh, kind of a miserable season from wins and losses, but uh, this Lions team, and this is very important, never quit on Dan Campbell. Uh, They had opportunity after opportunity to do that. And uh, I think Dan Campbell is going to be just fine Uh, for everyone listening right now saying, yeah, in typical Lions fashion, uh, they won the last game of the season against the Packers had they lost. Uh, because Jacksonville stunned the Indianapolis Colts. The Lions would have had the first overall pick in the upcoming NFL draft. Um, I've had many a conversation with NFL players over the years. They don't care when they draft. (laughs) They want to win football games. And uh, the Lions did a mere three times. But there is a lot of reason uh, to be optimistic about the Lions going forward. Let me tell you, I am a Lions, you know, fan and I'm one of those that go in that stadium every day thinking that like Willy Wonka I'm going to find the golden ticket with the Lions and then they lose and then they win I mean I was there for the very first win this year you would think we won the freaking Super Bowl the way people were (laughs) chanting and the way people were like going so we Lions fans are faithful we Lions fans believe (laughs) and we believe it's going to happen so I got to tell you the 313-1 yeah, but every single game, man, it wasn't a blowout. They they scored touchdowns. They scored field goals. They didn't give up. They 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 kept it going. Fourth quarter, they would not would not quit. 
And I like those kind of Lions. I like that. And you know what? We didn't get the first round, but, you know, that win against uh, Aaron Rodgers and his team, I mean, that's got to be a confidence booster. And the second half of the season was way better than the first half of the season. So as a Lions fan, I am so excited for next year and what Campbell can do to build this team. And you know what? We didn't get the first one. We get the second one. Well, we're going to be we're going to I'm going to see a much better Lions team, I think, next year, based on what I saw over the course of this season. Dr. Carroll, I, I just thoroughly enjoy your enthusiasm. Uh, I can tell you are you are all in on the Honolulu Blue and Silver. Uh, oh. For all the right reasons. I think offensively, uh, we saw a real silver lining in what was a rather dark cloud, and that is wide receiver Amon Ross St. Brown. Uh, he broke a couple of franchise rookie records at that position. Uh, their uh, great center, Frank Ragnow, uh, was gone and unavailable most of the year. I think the, the Lions' offensive line going into next year, as long as they're able to stay healthy, will be one of the better units in the league. Jared Goff, uh, all you can do is hope that he's going to be slightly above average, which I think he has the capable of being. I think we're locked into him for another season. Uh, and DeAndre Swift, is, uh, the running back, has a great potential to be an all-pro for years to come. Defensively, uh, I thought defensive coordinator uh, Aaron Glenn did a fine job with the talent that he had available. And I thought we saw a much better Lions defense uh, than we ever saw in the very dark Matt Patricia, Bob Quinn era. So uh, that's something to build on as well. Maybe add a couple of uh, pieces to that and they should be just fine. What about Michigan and Michigan State? Let's start with our Spartans. What a great season for the Spartans, Steve. Yeah, Annie, it was uh, a, a great season for Mel Tucker. Keep in mind, in only his second uh, season at the helm there in East Lansing. And when you uh, consider that Michigan State had 41 new faces on this team going into this year to find the cohesion and get the results that they did, for only the sixth time in the illustrious history of Michigan State football, they were able to get 11 wins. Uh, that is saying something. Now, that being said, Mel Tucker was rewarded uh, with a very nice contract. Uh, and you only get that if you've got the confidence of the people who are involved in making those decisions. Uh, some great news for Michigan State moving forward. Peyton Thorne's going to return. Jaden Reed, the great wide receiver, uh, return specialist. He is coming back, uh, as is Xavier Henderson, the proven leader on that uh, Spartan defense. He's also going to come back at that safety position. So uh, Michigan State is aligning itself very well uh, for next year. And how about the Wolverines? Good season for the Wolverines too, Steve. Yeah, you know, uh, the Wolverines under Jim Harbaugh finally got a couple of monkeys off their back, and it was very important. Mm -hmm. uh, they were able to beat Ohio State. Uh, which uh, in and of itself uh, was it for Wolverine fans, because this has been uh, something that's been troubling them. I will point out, for obvious reasons, that on October 30th in East Lansing, uh, Mel Tucker and the Spartans uh, took them down. That's all I'm saying. But they win the Big Ten <laughs> Championship. Uh, they, they, they absolutely crushed Iowa. Uh, and then they get to the Final Four, which was a huge moment for Wolverine fans. And it didn't pan out against Georgia. But the groundwork is laid for Jim Harbaugh and that pro program moving forward if, if Jim Harbaugh does not bolt for the National Football League. And that's going to be interesting to watch, isn't it, Stevie? 
Yeah, I, you know what? I, I think the game has changed in uh, college athletics, certainly uh, when it applies to football because of the transfer portal uh, and uh, NIL. Uh, it is um, a much, much different landscape. As a matter of fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago, via the album show, had a chance to talk to longtime friend Lloyd Carr, former head coach at Michigan, uh-huh. and I asked him if uh, he would like to be a part of that <laughs> transfer portal NIL scenario, and he said an emphatic no. Yes. It's different. I believe it, yeah. Totally different game nowadays. You've been listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show, brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. On behalf of Dr. Carol Kowalczyk, I'm Ann Thomas. We hope you have a great day. The Healthy Woman Show with Ann Thomas and Dr. Carol Kowalczyk has been presented by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health.